You're listening to WERALP, Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM, streaming and on demand at WERA.FM. I often tell my students, I'm not sure you'll leave this class with more answers, but if you have more refined, more sophisticated questions, then I think we'll have had a huge success. Coming to you from Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and this is Choose to be Curious. Welcome. Today's is a poignant show for me. This is the last in my Curiosity Studies series, a year-long collection of interviews with the contributing authors to the newly released anthology of the same name, seeking to establish what the editors describe as a new ecology of knowledge. I began recording the interviews about 18 months ago, and today's guest, Princeton professor Christina Leon, was the last to sit down with me. But even that was almost six months ago, which, as we all know, feels like 600 years ago. So when it came time finally to edit this episode, our worlds had changed, and I heard the conversation in an entirely new way. Christina's focus on accountability and our curiosity and the ethics of how we approach the unknown felt, like any good literature, relevant and applicable to our lives well outside what might have been the author's original intent. For most of the episodes in this series, I have included a short segment that I think illustrates the author's ideas, my way of bringing the discussion from the ivory tower to the streets. This time, I guess I'm the segment. Christina asked that we keep asking ourselves how we curiously engage with the face of another without forcing it into static, flattened notions of difference. And I wonder how in this time of COVID-19, of social distancing, which really amounts to hyper-proximity with some and heightened anxiety without any proximity with others, in a time of grappling with how to teach and learn in this new not-so-normal, in a time of reasonable fear of so many unknowns, how do we stay receptive, open to what is not yet disclosed, appreciative of the richness that opacity, a purposeful absence of transparency, might actually offer? Christina Leon has research and teaching interest in hemispheric American literature with a focus on Latina, Latino, Caribbean, and diasporic studies, in addition to critical engagements with feminist theory, queer theory, and performance studies. Her essay, Curious Entanglements, Opacity and Ethical Relations in Latina-Latino Aesthetics, challenges us to hold curiosity more accountable to its pursuits and more invested in ongoing relation, that we might foster an ethical approach to curiosity. What inspired your interest in curiosity, and and why this topic in particular? I think what inspired my interest in curiosity, in an explicit way, I think interest is itself curious. <laughs> well put. And so I think the invitation to write this chapter had me thinking squarely about pedagogy in the classroom, right? Because on the one hand, we really want to cultivate that curiosity that comes into the classroom 
it's the energy that can make or break a class in certain capacities. Mm -hmm. But I do think that people are trained to be curious about things differently. Mm. And so when I had the occasion to write this chapter and to reflect upon this in relation to my own role as a teacher, as a professor, and as a scholar, I was really thinking about how difficult it is to work with students who know that they're supposed to know about difference in an increasingly sort of um, social media uh, world where representative politics has really matched up with, you know, technologies of visuality and visual representation. But sometimes they feel like they have to know all the right answers ahead of time. Right. You get called out sometimes if you don't know stuff. Right. Or you feel called out if right. you don't know stuff. So that creates a pressure, doesn't it? It creates a pressure. And there's already a pressure when students come into the university classroom because they think at this level, I, I should come with this you know, masterful sort of thesis. And I actually just want them to be students. You know, I want to create the space where we're engaging with these highly political questions, but we're doing so in the space of the classroom, which for me is a space that can slow down what we think we know about difference, about diversity. And there was never a larger challenge for me with this than when I was assigned a class called Literature of American Minorities. And I was like, oh, gosh, oh my gosh. <laughs> um, this could go really badly if I if I do this the wrong way, yeah. you know. So it had me thinking about the fundamental questions of why I do what I do, why I teach in relation to marked demographics and aesthetics or and literature. And so what does that combination do? Mm -hmm. Because the students um, come into the classroom and they're sort of trained ahead of time. So it's, it's not entirely their fault, but because of, you know, the ways in which we have, uh, you know, Hispanic Heritage Month or Black History Month or Women's History Month, there, there are certain demographics or markers of difference where they're sort of almost trained to know that there's a right way to go about it and a wrong way to go about it. Mm. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but it is a bad thing if it stops them from reading and encountering the literature or the text or the questions, ask questions. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I think about this with a, a, a brilliant writer, Edwidge Danticott. She's a Haitian-American writer, and her books are so beautiful. And they deal with a lot of trauma. And then students will take that novel and make a sociological or ethnographic claim about Haiti. Mm. And that's when I have to put on the brakes, right? Because we're there, then we're at a bit of a quagmire because you can't use a novel right. as evidence for sociology. Right, but right. But again... I actually don't think that the blame is on the students or the classroom or even the literature. It's more about how a larger conversation around including these voices and texts has been presented to them, right? Yeah. You read this to learn about this culture. Right. 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 And so you're trying to... <sighs> You're trying to open the questions without driving towards answers, almost. Right. Is that? Yeah. Is that it? That's okay. a great way of putting it. And I often tell my students, I'm not sure you'll leave this class with more answers, but if you have more refined, more sophisticated questions, then I think we'll have had a huge success. Ah, ah very nice. So step back a moment sure. and kind of talk about Latinidad 
Talk to us about what that includes. Okay. So Latinidad is a way of talking about Latinoness or mm -hmm. the experience of being deemed Latinx in the Americas. Right. I like the term Latinidad because it is a hemispheric term. It goes across the Americas. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not entirely U.S.-based. And that's how people move and live, right? They live between places. Right. So this particular phenomenon has been around for some time, right? Um, since 1492, one might uh, uh -huh. <laughs> wager. One might wager. <laughs> but the, the way in which... Latinidad in the media has sort of started coming up in the in the last several decades. We get the same story. Mm. There's about to be a ground takeover. The uh, United States is becoming a minority majority uh, nation. And there are all of these fears around that. And then sometimes there are some really positive sort of uh, goals under that, right? So we want to be accountable to these numbers in mm -hmm. certain capacities. But sometimes in those stories, there can be a kind of a homogenizing or a, a kind of congealing of what we what, what falls under this really huge pan-ethnic Or you, I mean, rubric. you write about it in terms of flattening and deadening. Flattening it, and deadening. It becomes a monoculture, mm -hmm. you know, kind of a monolith, flat. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Even in even in the most generous modes, mm. I think it, mm -hmm. it, it, that can happen at times. So I really, I really like the possibility of working with this particular pan-ethnic category. Not only because it is the story of my family and the story uh -huh. of how I'm here in the states and here talking to you, but it's the larger history that's ongoing, right? We don't know the end of it. Right. And we certainly haven't gotten the story completely right in all of its complexity. And that's a possibility. That's an opportunity for us. Right. So it matters. I mean, obviously, it matters to you personally. But it matters in to all of us yes. because it really is – it's how we move into the future, isn't it? It is. And I think it's also a particular category that's so overburdened mm. by our conversations right now. So one of the things – that I like to do when I teach, for instance, in my Latinx literature class, I call it Latinx literary worlds because I like to think about, you know, how these worlds kind of come out of language in these beautiful ways. And one of the things I've been doing recently is instead of teaching uh, theories of the border from the U.S. looking to Mexico, I've been teaching uh, really brilliant translations from Spanish to English oh. so that we're getting perhaps a Mexico or a Central American look upward. Mm -hmm. Or then mm -hmm. if you take that border to a place like Puerto Rico, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where it's a different kind of watery border. Right, right. Know? Interesting. So you also have written about making curiosity more accountable to its pursuit. So you want your students curious yes. about these things. It's not that you don't want that, but you want a kind of accountability and more invested in the relationship right. um, there. So it's not it's not separate. People aren't kind of thinking of themselves as apart, I guess, from what they're studying. Is that what you're driving towards? That's a really interesting way of putting it. Yeah, I would say that not separate. Um, another way of saying that would be relational, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think reading is an opportunity for understanding how you encounter difference. Um, and how you encounter what we might call alterity. And that becomes complicated when it's assigned to a demographic. Right. right. 
So one of, one of the ways I think about this is that would you read this text the same way that you would read Shakespeare? Shakespeare is being read over and over and over again. Baudelaire, mm-hmm. Poe, over and over and over again, because it still has something to say across time. Mm-hmm. But if you have an a priori notion of what you need to get out of this one book because it's you know it comes from the Dominican Republic or you know it comes from Cuba, then you're already foreclosing that relation or you're sort of narrowing the possibility of the terrain of that relation. Is that what you mean when you talk about fostering an ethical approach to curiosity? Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Mm -hmm. So I think the students are, and a lot of us actually, are very well trained at what it means to be political in 2019. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I think we understand that well. I think adding ethicality to that, adding ethics to that, adding the fact that we are all in relation to one another and um, we have these ripple effects. And those ripple effects are in many ways unforeseeable, right? Mm-hmm. So so if I'm if I'm thinking about you, Lynn, I, I know your name and we've just met. And but if I start assuming that I know things about you, right, right, I shut down our relation. Right. And so in the literary classroom and in, in in a larger kind of capacity, I think curiosity for it to to sort of maintain its radical open potential, that openness has to kind of stay risky and ha- and you can't have too clear of a, of a path. Mm, I like that. I like that. And you, you talk about it in terms of the texture mm-hmm. of the relationship and paying attention to that larger texture as opposed to kind of the individual component threads, which... I don't know if you happen to work with textiles and things, but as a as a, a knitter and a sewer, and that really resonated mm-hmm. for me in terms of, you know, something is always more, it's more than the sum of its parts or whatever that expression is. Yeah. And, that, and that the texture of it is almost something, again, about anything that we touch. It's a, it's, it's a part um, from the individuals. And I... I'm trying to figure out how to make the segue to what you talk about in terms of opacity. Sure. And and sort of keeping some things unknown mm-hmm. as a contribution to the texture. Yeah. When it so with texture, I think one of the things that I start to think about there is there's so much about university classrooms that's about knowledge, that's about braininess, that's about an accumulation of knowledge. But so much of the aesthetic experience of reading a book or of encountering art or a performance is to be moved by a sensorium that is not exactly legible to reason, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the places that opacity is plays this really crucial role in relations and it has a really crucial dy- dynamism to how we engage with the literary or the aesthetic, mm-hmm. right? Um, so if something moves you and you have to reread that line or something, you're walking through a museum and, and this abstract piece of art calls out to you, but you don't know why. Mm. Right. Mm. That becomes actually a way of sustaining that relation, that openness. Right. So opacity 
in the way that I'm developing it in my own work and then in concert with great thinkers like uh, the Martinique and Afro-Caribbean philosopher Edward Glissant. He's where I really start thinking with texture. Um, he says, and, and I might be misquoting him here, but he says something to the extent of you want to pay attention to the texture of the weave rather than the particular components of the thread. Yeah, This for me, had me thinking about how most of literature is is are these like woven motifs and words and sentences. And then when we pay attention to them in their own dynamism, we're focused less on categorizing them uh-huh. and more on thinking about what they do, right? Mm-hmm. How, how they move us. Mm-hmm. I actually... I have a favor to ask. Yeah. You write about this so beautifully, and I, I kind of wanted to hear it in your own voice. Sure. So I bracketed it. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Could you just read yes. between the brackets? Of course, yeah. Reading curiously for opacity may be a scholarly practice of humility that students, interpolated as consumers and turned out as workers, seldom get afforded in their lives. While it seems rather risky to teach with an attunement to opacity in the classroom, I find that if students can trust themselves enough to let go of the pretense of mastery, they relax into the terrain of thought and aesthetics that traffics less in easy answers and more in the curious quagmire that surrounds us all. If students, then, are allowed to be students, allowed not to know every identitarian category or minority difference before discussion or before sustained encounters, then the work of reading can begin and the work of imagination can begin. Thank you Mm -hmm. for that. You know, when I read these things, I'm always looking for what's the curiosity practice. And I thought reading curiously for opacity Mm -hmm. is a curiosity practice. Mm -hmm. So tell me how one does that. What does that look like? It really, I think it's such an individual, um, singular experience, Mm -hmm. right? So in my own work, I think I have chosen to pursue to write about things that I find incredibly difficult Mm. to explain why I find them so motivating or why I find them so beautiful or so necessary for thinking about politics and ethics. Mm-hmm. With my students, what I encourage them to do is to actually kind of linger within the text. So rather than moving through the text and picking up the themes and picking up the motifs and checking off, you know, this is what this chapter is about, I want them to sit with a quotation or a line or a word that, that gave them a lot of trouble. What's the part of the text that snagged you? Mm. You know, what's the part of the text that stopped you? Where you had to stop and reread? Why did you have to reread? You know, I think that kind of curious practice allows for a slowing down that the classroom affords, that literature affords, that philosophy affords, but that our our really, our modern life often doesn't motivate. And so where does opacity fit into that then? Well, opacity fits in because it's not it's not the negative of knowledge, right? But in order to acquire more knowledge, I have to admit what I don't know. I have to admit humility. 
And I think that's the ethical attunement too, right? That I admit that I, I'm moving forward in this and I am not, I'm not completely aware of the terrain. I don't know exactly how this is going to go, but I'm going to keep engaging. But that engagement, why do I keep engaging? I keep engaging because I don't have the full story. I haven't totalized. I haven't mastered. And in to translate that to the particular chapter that I wrote, I haven't deadened. I haven't categorized. I haven't colonized. I haven't, right. I haven't put a stamp on it and rendered it, you know, categorizable, known, static. So what's so interesting about that is that it also, for me, you know, calls up the, the language of mastery and that mastery is about controlling mm-hmm. the information mm-hmm. at some level. Mm-hmm. And what you're asking for is that we sit with the information and we don't think about it in terms of what we control about it, but we continue to ask. Yeah. Sort of the more we know, the, the more we understand there is to know. Yeah. That we feel less and less in control of it, maybe. And, and maybe then we work with it, not mm. on it. Mm-hmm. Or we're, mm-hmm. we work with it, not through it. Mm. Right. And that way we can start to have these curious practices that are non-delineated, right? So curiosity is often a stumbling or, or a, a, an interest or something that calls you and you don't know why. And it often leads you in these kind of unforeseen paths. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You use stumbling several times mm. in close proximity to curiosity. It's one of these things that I notice that people do. I wanted to get you to talk a little bit about that pairing for you. Why do those connect for you? I think because curiosity can come as a, a, as a sort of call from the text or from uh-huh. there's some question, there's some nagging. There's something that's making you not move as smoothly as you might if you were totally assured uh-huh. of what you were looking at or doing or reading. And so I think that stumbling is, is, is a way of being productively errant, like productively off path. Oh, interesting. Yeah. interesting. Well, it, yeah, it definitely takes you off your determined pace, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it, and I think it interrupts the flow. And it can undo maybe even something you thought you knew about yourself, right? Mm. Because not all of my students are looking at stories about people that are not like them. Some of them, this is the first time they're seeing a story that reflects upon their own life. Mm. But even I think about it this way, and, and this is one of the ways I've tried to explain it. I may be a product of Latinidad, and I am, and I may I may also experience it, but the way that I experience it is 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 very singular, and I don't even know how I experience it all the time, right? Mm-hmm. And so I sometimes try to make a parallel to science metaphors. My students tend to believe me a little bit more when I use them. <laughs> when you go cross-platform. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, going across platform, speaking of curious practices, is, is, is something that's helpful because it can illuminate, right, through that chasm of yeah. difference. And so one of the things I try to say is, you know, we all experience gravity, but it takes quite a lot to understand how gravity yes, works. Yes, yes. Right? Uh, and so this is this is where opacity comes in for me. It, it is, it's a sustaining of relationship. It, it is, it's a possibility of ethical relation to the question, right? So it's not that I'm trying to say, oh, this text has nothing to do with Latinidad. But I want to remain really open about that. Mm-hmm. 
Remaining really open could easily be the tagline, not only for this show, but for the whole Curiosity Studies series as well. And yet, right now, as we've hunkered down, it feels hard. So let this be an invitation to try, an invitation to look for and value the nuance, to avoid flattening anything other than the COVID curve, and to stay in relation even as we are apart, an invitation to appreciate the texture of our collective weave, and that sometimes a little mask is appropriate and protective in more ways than may meet the eye. You've been listening to WERA 96.7 FM. If you joined us late or want to catch up with this or any of the other great shows here on Radio Arlington, check us out online and on demand at WERA.FM. You can catch all my previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, SoundCloud, and Facebook, all at Choose to be Curious, and on my website at ChooseToBeCurious.com or on Twitter at Choose Number 2, Letter B, Curious. Many thanks to my guest, Christina Leon. You can find more about her work and the whole Curiosity Studies series on my website. Our theme music is by Sean Ballack, and this is Come As You Are by Cauldron by a Blue Dot Sessions. Stay well, friends, and let's all focus on the texture of our relations, attentive to our ripples. I hope you'll join me again next time, and until then, choose to be curious. So let me ask you, you use the terminology of the violence of curiosity. Mm-hmm. And of course, I promote curiosity. Mm-hmm. So so I want to understand better sure. where and how it's violent. Well, there in particular, I was looking at the history of curiosity in relation to travel literature. And so curiosity also has its roots in colonial practices. And so... One question to ask, I think, with curiosity is, am I, am I being curious so that I can control the narrative? Am I being curious so I can colonize a peoples? Am I being curious so I can detain someone? Am I asking them who they are so that I can lock them up? I think there are really profound ways in which the very same thing that opens one up in a classroom that can change somebody's life, that can change perspective, can also be rigidified. And so the reason why I decided to title the chapter Curious Entanglements was so that we could be accountable to that past and that possibility, right? Because I think with ethics, we have to be fairly vigilant about when we might be doing violence and we won't know it, right? There are unintended consequences to being in relation to every other person on this planet and and the, the entire planet and ecosystems, right? There are costs to the ways in which we interact with one another. Or even just when people are in a kind of flimsy way curious about someone else, but only because they want to judge that. That to me can be the way in which curiosity can be siphoned off into projects that I'm not aligned with, that don't align with my values, and I think that don't align with the larger values that this particular collection is interested in.
Funding for Choose to be Curious on WERA 96.7 FM is provided in part by the Center for Parents and Teens, where families are strengthened through a connection built through positive communication, mutual understanding, and realistic expectations of one another. For more information, visit www.centerforparentsandteens.com. Funding for Choose to be Curious is provided in part by Concentric Private Wealth, where changemakers develop clarity for today and confidence for tomorrow by centering on what matters most, which involves more than just money. More information at www.concentricpw.com. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.